0: what is confidence a simple definition is an optimism or belief in something or someone an idea a friend or colleague and most importantly yourself but how does someone achieve confidence and why is confidence not always necessarily a result of success James Smith is a sort of expert on confidence. Thanks to his no BS style, James has established himself as a best-selling author, podcast host, business coach, and mentor in a short period of time. And he's back at it with a new book simply titled, How To Be Confident. And though he is already wildly popular in Australia, where he currently lives, and in his native UK, he's bringing his show on the road in North America for the very first time at the end of this year. That includes a stop here in Austin on December 13th at 3:10 at ACL Live. Tickets for that event and all of his stops in North America can be purchased at JamesSmith.live. You give him a follow on Instagram at JamesSmithPT. So I believe Luke said that you have a business partner here in Austin. Is that right?
1: Uh, yeah, so uh Chris Williamson. Oh,
0: yeah. I'm actually cool. going to see him this weekend at this at something called Minds Fest, which is this big exchange of ideas. Uh oh, yeah, so looking forward to that. Yeah, it's gonna be him. You heard of Brian Callum before?
1: He shared a few of my videos, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my god, Brian Callum. I I listen to Fight Companion all the time. Yeah. Uh, so like, yeah, I'm a big fan of those guys. And I've spent a bit of time in Austin. Uh I trained jiu-jitsu there uh about a year ago with have you heard of the b team
0: um is that through 10th planet 10th, uh, planet, no, so is
1: 10th, 10th planet is opposite that kuya uh ice baths and spa place so <laughs> i trained there we used to train there on sundays but uh b team is i can't remember the exact region but they're one of the top teams mm. and uh so in like the celebrity world of jiu-jitsu they're all in austin so i went there for about a month and i love it there
0: yeah, Austin's a good place. I mean, obviously, you escaped uh, the UK for much brighter pastures in Australia, and also getting to live right next to the beach, which is cool. Uh, a lot of people have done that with Austin, from all over the country and the world, to uh, to various degrees, as your as your uh, your buddy Chris can attest to, since he moved moved his operation here within the last couple of years. I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, and I mean, uh, it's kind of just that central hub where everything's kind of taking place there, and I'm not sure if it's. Uh, A shared opinion. But when I went to LA and New York, I was a little bit underwhelmed, probably due to the size of the city and just the the hustle bustle. When I went to Austin, I was like, okay, I get it. Like, this is uh, a lifestyle that's congruent with a good life, where I never felt that in New York and I never felt that in LA.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm similar. Actually, the only time I've enjoyed LA is when I've stayed on the fringes, so I've been near the beach or just not in the city proper. And then New York's just a weird energy, man. Like it's one of those places you feel like you need a vacation after you're done in New York because it's just it's just you have to be so on alert the entire time. And it's also a spot where you obviously are denying yourself sleep if you're uh, enjoying the city at uh, all hours of the day and night too. But uh, Austin's a cool spot. I lived in Chicago for a while. It's where I met my wife. I, I bet, I don't remember if you're stopping there on your North America tour. That's a really cool city too. You may you may enjoy that one if you get a chance to go there.
1: Yeah, I think we're going to Chicago uh, as well. And I mean, when we did the signups for the events, we were looking at all these different cities where we had like a good amount of people sign up. And we were very very surprised with some of them. Because the the main places have really always been UK and Australia. Mm -hmm. And as far as developing that confidence to go out and do events, we were very pleasantly surprised with some of the places that got interest in America. Um,
0: Yeah, I'm looking now. Bottom Lounge is where you're going in Chicago. That's a really cool spot. I've never seen your type of show there before, but I've seen a bunch of live music and a little bit of stand-up. So uh, you should really enjoy that one.
1: With the venues that we pick, we do pick more of the kind of comedy club gig venues where they will have a good, sufficient bar at the back where people can come along and have a drink, and like, yeah. uh, it's kind of a bit of a unique thing that we cultivated where we're combining humour with education. Which, you know, uh, I, I had a comedian come along to one of my live shows, and he was—he's a proper Londoner—and he says to me, he was out, he was almost angry. He was like, "Do you know what, bruv?" Do you know how you've got it good? And I said, How? He goes, No, no one expects you to be funny. So when you're funny, it's a bonus. He goes, When they come to my show, I have to be funny or they'll slate me. And I was like, it's a very interesting way to put it.
0: You know, that's interesting that he says that because I would assume that you are infusing humor with your shows just based on the social media posts, which Of course, they're going to be described as no BS first and foremost, but you love poking fun at the ridiculousness of life, oftentimes in the fitness world, of course.
1: Then there's, I suppose what can happen is over, because I'm very fortunate to do so many shows, as we build the shows up, I get a good idea of what really landed well and what didn't, similar to a stand-up. So then by the time we get to the second half of doing the round of the shows after the warm-up ones, I know what all the punchy jokes are, so I can kind of tie them in better and better and better. With a social post, it just goes out that one time. But with the kind of show, I get to, um, I come off stage. And I remember quite quite a lot of the ideas come to me improv. So I have like an idea of where the talk's going to go. I have an idea of the topic. But sometimes if I've had too many energy drinks, I would take a story even further and further. And I'll make up fictional characters. And I'll get off stage and my manager will be like, Becky, keep her in. We need Becky in the next show. We need that <laughs> fictional character in. So uh, yeah, it definitely helps me doing that
0: for anybody who's listening right now, who's maybe interested in checking out the show at uh, 310 at ACL live on December 13th here in Austin is the show you monologuing the entire time. Do you bring special guests up? Uh, Obviously your buddy, Chris Williamson is here in Austin. Might he take part or is it really you just uh, going at it for a solid hour to 90 minutes?
1: So uh, yeah, we will have someone kind of uh, open the show. Chris Williamson will be heavily involved in that. And you think that the general amount of conversations that people have are kind of this longer format discovery you kind of wander into different topics the show is me taking some of the most impactful topics that I've kind of come across in the last few years and over three books and bringing them together in a way that uh, can be entertaining for someone also thought-provoking and in some respects maybe give someone the kick in the ass they need to implement change so it's in one hand empowerment, in one hand it's stand-up, in one hand it's almost like trying to uh, bring to life the best parts of a TED Talk. But whereas in a TED Talk you're, you know, restricted to one topic for 17 minutes, you're restricted in a podcast to the conversation, to the nuance of the guest. And it's such a fun environment to uh, have free reign on that. And it it is a tough one. We try not to give away too much about what we talk about because we want that kind of factor where people bring a friend and they're like, oh, you know, I didn't think about it like that. And, um, yeah, to be able to do it on American soil was very exciting.
0: Yeah. I feel like, uh, you've grown in popularity through organic means like that. Like I first found out about you because my wife who was a fan and felt empowered from some of your previous stuff. And she found out through a friend who went through something very similar. So clearly, uh, you've you've uh, you've captured that in a bottle. So congratulations on that. As far as the, the newest book is concerned, I know it's your third book. It's simply titled How to Be Confident. Uh, this book really resonated for me. There are certain ideas that I was familiar with before, but others that I weren't. But I feel like you and I are dialed into very similar circles because this book feels to me, although it is about confidence, it also feels like uh, maybe a passive love letter to stoicism. Is that a uh, fair alternate description of how to be confident?
1: Yeah, I think that for me, so much of you know where people label themselves as something, they then have to stay true to that label. And I think that if you go through a period of time or even a period of your life that you are unable to take decisions in the right direction, often in action, often shying away from difficult decisions, you need a label to live with that makes you feel okay with that. And I think that so many people go through life, and if they take the connotation of not being a confident person, no one's going to rebuke it. No one's going to push back. No one's going to go, Nah, Tim. You know what? I've seen you. You've got you've got it in you, man. That that just doesn't happen. There, are people who go, Oh yeah, fair enough. You know, yeah, oh, he's a shy. Leave him alone. Whatever. Oh, download Hinge or Tinder because you're not a confident guy. Mm-hmm. So the book is about really bringing to life the fact that 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 belief is often self-assessed. It's also self-made it's also there to keep you in a comfortable position and that anyone can truly you know become confident if they can just identify things in their life where they can make decisions that point more in the direction of action and you know it might be something small like starting a blog or starting a little passion project on tiktok recording yourself making things in your garage It, it doesn't matter and then if people can reframe the metrics of success as just doing it you know there are there are some crazy things and the world's never been better to pursue a passion project in my opinion i get caught up in TikTok of watching bricklayers i want and someone out there started one day at work as a bricklayer and he goes you know what i'm gonna film this i'm gonna overlay some video on it and i'm gonna let people watch it i'm now 10 to 10 in bed at night watching a bricklayer do his thing i'm wondering why he's got quarter of a million likes on it and then when i see him do a paid post i'm kind of like you know what mate good on you good on you for doing that because If he had said to, I bet, I guarantee the day he got his phone out on a tripod, his other bricklayer mates would have been like, what are you doing, you idiot? Like, why are you filming it? No one cares about that. This is just the culture we live in. But he went, no, do you know what? I'm passionate about this. I think other people might enjoy this. I'm going to go after it. And then maybe in five years' time, someone could say to him, what gave you the confidence to start? This is just a wild example. What gave you the confidence to start filming yourself? It wasn't confidence he needed. Confidence is never a precursor. It's what comes after the point of starting similar to motivation. Everyone thinks you need motivation and that you need confidence to begin a project. But in reality, it comes after you before you start it comes after. One,
0: well, it's also important. And you point this out throughout the book that confidence isn't always about success. As a matter of fact, it's important with confidence that you not only put yourself in uncomfortable positions or new positions as you were just describing there, but you also go through the trials and tribulations of being outside of that comfort zone, outside of that proverbial box. Uh, Why is it uh, so important to understand how to, how to deal with failure as it pertains to gaining confidence?
1: There's a massive utility to failing, which people just, don't really appreciate or see. And I mean, I take it back to the days of when I used to work in door-to-door sales. And I remember figuring out within the first few weeks that I needed to knock on 100 doors to make a sale. That was it. No matter how rain, shine, different postcodes I was knocking in. And then I realized, okay, cool. Then 99 times that people are going to say no, this is my actual period and chance to improve my graph. And I was like, I would never, i knock on a door and I was like, it's a 99% chance they're going to tell me to piss off, not interested, whatever. But I go, the second they say hello, I'm just going to practice my pitch. Sometimes I'd fumble at the beginning. Sometimes I'd fumble at the end. Sometimes I'd twist my tongue. But if they were to say no, whatever, I would take that opportunity to fail and add it to my building block of competence, add it to my building block. And then I just turn up at the door, do my pitch best I could. They would go, do you know what? We've actually thought about changing providers and you come. And I'd be like, oh, Jesus, it it was never about expecting that. It was just about doing it beforehand. So we can learn a lot from failure because if we can't see what doesn't work, we can't really navigate what does work. For instance, you might be in a Starbucks chatting someone up and you might say something brash or bold or facetious and it may not work. But by knowing what doesn't work, you could try then figuring out what might. You might go super polite, super chivalrous, and it doesn't work. So the next time you might go, Oh, I'm going to go a bit facetious. You might meet someone at pre-drinks to a party. This, one of my friends that I was at university with, he had a way with words that I can never fully understand. And I'll never forget, we're about to go on a night out. And he goes up to a girl that he's never met before. And he goes, are oh, you not wearing that out, are you? And she went, what's wrong with this? And he goes, no, 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 no. No, I'm just surprised you'd wear that out on a night out. And she was like, oh my God, is there something wrong with it? And he goes, no, no, I'm only joking. He goes, I'm Bill, nice to meet you. And I don't... At that point, I was like, oh, maybe I've been doing this wrong. Maybe I've been trying too hard to be, oh, what do you do, oh, where are you from? He just went in with a, a, a backhanded, you know, almost insult, but because of it, she got a bit riled up, a bit protective, then they had a laugh about it. And then I was like, okay, maybe I'm gonna try this when I'm in a different country. Maybe I'm gonna banter someone before I ask them the dull, boring questions that everyone else does. Now, if this never works for me, I can assume and build evidence for a case that this is not the way to approach someone or chat them up. However, If I start getting better success rates, I can now build an argument that the way I was doing it before was wrong. So uh, there are other ways that on YouTube, social media, Instagram, I might really change the first five seconds of how I build the post. And if I put in swearing or frustration or a a facial emotion in the beginning, I can then note, is that working for me or it's not? And if a post falls on its ass, it just falls on its ass, and with the social media world, That's not damaging your business. It just wasn't picked up by the algorithm because there wasn't enough interest or or whatever with it. So if you just stick to the exact same routine of what you're doing, you're never going to get the feedback from the world that you're in to whether or not you're doing it better or worse. So, yeah, there's a utility to failure.
0: Yeah, and eventually enough of those small tweaks and changes after you start something leads to you becoming maybe not an expert uh, over a short period of time, but you continue to get better to all of a sudden, if I mean, if you're talking about being a YouTube personality or social media personality, all of a sudden the product that you're offering up to people is uh, much more palatable. It's something that, is, that somebody is much more likely to want to come back and consume over and over again.
1: At the moment, one thing that I've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole with is really focusing on YouTube my thumbnails and my titles. Yeah. and We get that click through rate and I'm becoming obsessed with that because that's real time feedback of whether or not what I've created is working. Adam Grant uh, is an author of a book called Think Again, where human beings are very much locked into their first decision. But when looking at kind of the data, when we sit and reflect and really look at the fact that maybe we were wrong, we often make better decisions, but we're almost too proud of that first decision. So now I make the thumbnail, I make the title, I go away, I come back, I change the thumbnail, I change the title. I go back and forth and I'm like, I'm trying to challenge myself. Am I doing it wrong? Should I try this? And sometimes I'll try something and two hours later I go, no, no, no. My click-through rate's abysmal. I need to change it back to this. I need to shorten the title. I need to put this in it. I need to add an arrow to the thumbnail. But without these little changes in approach, I wouldn't be able to improve. But then I'll try something really crazy, really left field yesterday, I photoshopped myself onto someone else's picture. First time I've ever done it. And it got an exceptional click-through rate. And I'm like, wow, not only have I found the way to do it, I found out and built evidence for maybe the way I've been doing it before has not been good. So yeah, without these tweaks and changes and and getting the feedback from it, people will stagnate. If I look back six months and I'll cringe at any progress I had, whether it was videos, YouTube, whether it was even, even writing in some respects, Because we need to continually build data and evidence towards what's working and what isn't. Like you say correctly, you never really become an expert. You just become better polished and better experienced with failure and success.
0: That's a healthy feeling too, by the way, of being disgusted with your earlier work. That means that you have actually made those tweaks to improve. There's a quote that you uh, cite at some point. I feel like it's in chapter four that goes, when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. What do you love about this quote?
1: I read this about 10 years ago and it's perfectly summed up what I've been trying to express to people for so long. And people, you know, oh, uh, guys at my gym, I think they're on steroids. I go, oh yeah, well if you hear hooves outside, it could be a zebra, right? It could be that guy's natural with great genetics, but it's probably it's probably a horse, mate. You know, it's probably a horse. Because out of all the animals that have hooves that are going to come past your house, statistically speaking, if I had to bet money on it, it'd be that. And I'm saying that the guy at your gym who's got massive muscles, he sticks out from everyone else, he's probably on steroids. Same respect that, you know, in any way you want to kind of approach that. And I love that saying, because in our mind, you see something in the sky, oh, that could be an alien. It could be, but chances are it's a plane, or it's a comet, or it's a rocket, or whatever. But our body... And our brains love to go off to the tangents. It loves to almost excite itself. You know, and this works as, I suppose, tied in with other things like uh, the negativity bias where we perceive everything, you know, to lean to a negative outcome. You hear a rustle in the bushes. It could be someone coming to mug me. Chances are it's just a rabbit or it's just a mole or a mouse or whatever. So, you know, we have to almost really rationalize our brain to say it could be, but it's probably not. I put this in the book, one of my favourite parts about living in Australia. I live near the beach and I go for a swim in the sea and all my English mates are like, oh, you're not worried about sharks? And I'm like, mate, I am way more likely to drown out there than I am to get eaten by a shark. Like, Brits are pulled from the sea every day. You know, there's a shark attack like once a year. Same where, you know, uh, plane crashes. The plane goes down, people are not flying. I'm like, do you know how many people died in cars today? But yet you're absolutely fine still like sending a tweet while driving. So yeah, it's it's one of those kind of, I'm, I'm fascinated with the way the human mind works and some of the kind of fallacies and, and weird things that we do as humans.
0: It's crazy the power Jaws has all these years later, more than 45 years later now. Now, you, uh, you do explore the idea of nature versus nurture as it pertains to confidence. And I'm inclined, as a lot of other people probably are, that it is more of a nurture thing versus nature. But interestingly, in this chapter, you point out that, you're a product of adoption, which helps to explain your exploration uh, of uh, an interest in personality traits and children and adolescents that, uh, that uh, these people exhibit and whether they take more after their adopted parents or their biological parents. And adopted kids tend to uh, mimic their adopted parents more in childhood, but when they reach adolescence, they tend to exhibit more behaviors of their biological parents. That's fascinating to learn about, one, but two, do you know if that carries over into adulthood as well, James?
1: It was it was quite hard to find something inclusive where I could say, oh, it's exactly this. And then again, I even think when I was looking through some of the research, I was like, you know, is it because maybe kids are more malleable? They're more, you know, looking at the people around them to determine uh, what exactly they should be doing with themselves? And then getting into adulthood, we have then so many more people that influence us, whether it's friends, family. I Even if I hang around with my friends who have got accents, I start to pick the accent up within a few weeks. So I think that as children, we are much more likely to have a much smaller environment of people that we kind of learn from. And as we go to adults, we almost shake that off because our pool of people that we are surrounded by definitely changes. But for me, I'm very different to other family members in some respects when it comes to interests when it comes to even attitude no one in my family is aggressive at all and for me i love martial arts i love watching fighting i wanted to get into boxing when i was younger my mom wouldn't let me like and i try and figure out i'm like is this part of my genetics or even then is it because i'm six foot so if i'm six foot and 94 kilograms i'm bigger than most people So maybe being bigger than people or having height to your side or having all of these different traits might then push you down avenues of wanting to do more physical things, more combat sports. Maybe if I was five foot two, I might not wanted to have done this kind of stuff. So it is a fascinating thing. And I don't think that many of us sit back and think enough about what is hereditary and what is environmental. And I mean, there's a big trend at the moment of people talking about, uh, you know, attention deficit disorder. And I even, am really interested in going down the route of getting tested, but I'm like, have we created this through our landscape of social media? Or is this something that potentially some of us have anyway? And it's weird that even in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen this massive disconnect between, a film used to be an hour and a half, two hours, but we've lost that now. And you either, you know, watch something that's a few minutes long like six minute youtube or you'll watch maybe a one hour series on netflix but even netflix was um you know they were they came along where people aren't going to commit two hours where people are only going to watch in one hour blocks but there's no medium format at the moment there's either one second uh, one minute reels or there's one hour netflix like the landscape's changing but our brains surely can't have changed in that period of time so it's very interesting trying to determine what is environmental and what is hereditary what what has come to our genes
0: we we have definitely become a society that has a hard time with just sitting there being bored and i actually have an 8 and 6 year old at home i see that with them all the time i'm bored i'm bored I'm, it's like okay we'll figure out a way to not be bored that has nothing to do with tele, uh, staring at a television screen or maybe a tablet for hours on end and people are like that in general so i think that it is at least partially the environment that we're in now and how we are always seeking out that immediate gratification versus understanding that sometimes it is okay to just sit in nature, let's say, or at the beach. I know you say you, uh, you go to the sea for a swim, like just, 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 just chill, chill out and not worry about too much. You don't have to do it all day necessarily, although that could certainly be good for you as well, but just sit there and be bored. That's actually a healthy thing for us.
1: You see, it's interesting. Like, uh, I definitely think about this. And whenever I watch films that are done, you know, I've been watching Peaky Blinders on Netflix. Before that, I was watching like 1883, the prequel to Yellowstone. And I was like, looking at them, even though they're actors in the modern day world, I'm like, they would have just sat there and just talked and just looked at the stars, like ancient civilizations spent the majority, as soon as it got dark, they were just up looking at the sky. Whereas we're all now down looking at screens or, or whatever, and we have lost the ability to be bored. My dad, commuted into London on a train and all he had was a newspaper and I said to him did people used to talk to each other he's like yeah, we'd have conversations with each other we'd talk we'd sit there and even uh, getting a train to one of my events last year there was a guy sat next to us who had a phone but he didn't look at it for an hour he was slightly older and he just sat there and he just sat there with his arms crossed just thinking and I look at Luke my manager I go we've lost that We've lost that ability to just be there with our own thoughts and let our mind drift, even to the point that if I need to be creative, I need to distract myself from any tasks. So often I'll have a shower if I need to come up with an idea or hash out something. And what's been great for me is also getting the dog, where when I throw the ball for the dog, I don't have a spare hand to put my phone in. So I'm gone for an hour just throwing a ball for the dog, just thinking about things. I almost getting into that like weird flow state where nothing else is really important.
0: Another area that you talk about in how to be confident, so I'm not I'm not trying to diminish this, this here, but I think we're swinging too far in the other direction it has to do with feelings like it is so important that we do recognize feelings and we're in a much better place in that regard in some ways than we were 10, 15, 20 years ago, but by the same token, I think way too many people are putting too much stock in only dwelling on their feelings. Versus recognizing those feelings and and plowing ahead. I mean, it could be just about anything. It could be sadness. It could be happiness. It could be feeling anxious. It could be feeling a little bit down. And I think that it's gotten to a point with people, especially younger generations, but even people my age, I mean, 45 years old right now, where it becomes only about the feelings and nothing more. And you are... I don't want to say you're seeking out the sympathy of others but your identity starts to become much more about those feelings versus how you're able to respond to whatever that difficult situation is that has created those feelings to begin with
1: 100% and I mean I think that younger generations I definitely note uh, a lack of resilience or even the facts that if I if I ever experience emotions that I don't like I take stock of it I don't you know if I feel anxious or if I feel you know low mood or low energy or whatever it is i don't think this is bad well on me life is terrible i take stock of it and i go okay why am i feeling like this which is thought what can i do to get out of it which is action and like exactly how you say people almost go oh i'm down all the time i'm a i'm a person that's uh, low mood i'm a person that struggles in this realm whereas i think some people go Okay, I'm feeling down. Why am I feeling down? Well, I probably haven't been looking after myself well enough. I haven't been going outside. I've been glued to my smartphone. Okay, what could I do to feel better about that? I could go outside more. I could put my smartphone down more. Okay, cool. I'm going to do those things. And I think that, like you say, in some respects, people might be dwelling on their emotions too much rather than using them as signals for uh, remediative action that they could take afterwards.
0: Yeah, by the same token, uh, obviously success feels really good and failure sucks, but either can result in you getting thrown off kilter too. Like success breeds a different sort of inaction by the fact that you are just uh, wallowing in your own success a little bit too much, whereas failure can cause you to get down and stay down versus picking yourself up extracting the necessary lessons that you discussed a little bit earlier and implementing them as as you plow forward to, uh, to hopefully find more success in the future?
1: I'm susceptible to the hedonic treadmill, where no matter how big your win is or how great you feel, it's going to be short-lived. And the same respect that people would never like to say that grievance and winning are both going to be short-lived. But the crazy reality is, even if you bought yourself a Ferrari, three months you're going to be pretty bored of it and you'll you'll create some cognitive dissonance. You'll be like, no, 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 I still love it. This is great. I love driving it. But that feeling you initially got the first time you drove it is going to be short-lived. And the same respect that you know if someone loses their house financially, they're going to be torn. They're going to be really upset the day they have to sell their house because of their financial situation. But three months down the line renting a smaller apartment and actually being able to afford their bills and not having that doom of the mortgage over their head. They're going to get this weird sense where they go. it wasn't actually as bad as I thought. You know, heaven forbid when people's animals die at the time, they feel like they can't live or carry on without it. But a few years later and it will pass and people need to realize that every emotion returns to baseline. Every emotion is going to come back. But with the negatives, with the failures, that return to baseline feels good and it can motivate us and we can be like, okay, cool. That wasn't so bad. Let's get at it. But when you experience massive bouts of success and you come back to baseline, you start to resent the fact you feel numb about it. And I've definitely had this where I've set so many real you know, goals in my life. And I was like, I will be so happy when I achieve that. But then when I achieve that, I realize I don't feel anything because I've already set the next benchmark to keep myself busy. Like uh, well, me and my manager have been joking about working to get the silver play button from YouTube. I was like, that would be so good. The second I ordered it, I messaged him going, we need a gold one. And I, I didn't even for one second appreciate, hey, mate, three months ago, you would have been buzzing about this. Why have you not even acknowledged it? Like, what the hell is going on? And I think people struggle with that as well. But they start to think they're broken because they're on a the hedonic treadmill where people don't really share this too much. I like to say to people, all wins feel the same. And it's crazy that someone starting their own business and getting their first client on will feel the same as you have been in business 10 years and getting the biggest client you've ever got in 10 years. The levels of reward-seeking behaviours and dopamine and serotonin and all of these hormones, there is no Uber surcharge like trying to book an Uber on a rainy day. Just because there's more money involved or more notoriety or more fame or whatever it is, you don't get like a 1.7 Uber surcharge on that release. And I think when people can understand that, it can help them really kind of manage their hormones, the hormones and emotions that go with it a little bit better and just see it how it is. Hmm.
0: All right. Last question, James. In the second half of this book, you encourage people to ask themselves what uncomfortable things they've put themselves through recently to get an accurate read on how much they're developing and growing in that moment. So my final question for you is, other than this interview, what is something uncomfortable you've put yourself through recently?
1: I competed last weekend in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I've been training well for like nine months. But then I I hate competing because in the training room, people are nice. We're all teammates. Someone gets my knee in a dodgy position. They go, mate, I've got you in this position. But at competition, someone's just thinking about the podium. They don't know me. We've never met before. If my knee's in a dodgy position and I don't feel it, he's going to break my leg. But then all your fears are greater in your imagination than they are in reality. So I then sit through periods. My whoop, my stress, my heart rate variability leading up to this competition, even though I said I was fine, it was in the back of my mind the whole time. But I needed to go to compete because I needed a reality check of where I'm at. And I sat there and I realized, James, whichever way this goes, if you lose, you're going to be motivated. And if you win, you're going to feel good for a short period of time. It didn't help that I broke my thumb in my first match, uh, but i One, two out of three after that with one hand, but the nerves, the stepping on stage, the dry mouth, even like, I felt fine, but then I realized why the hell is my mouth so dry? I've just drunk two liters of water and my mouth got stuck to the roof of my mouth because I'm nervous, because I'm uncomfortable, because I I don't want to be here. I'm ruining my weekend. I had to drive an hour and a half to go compete on Sunday. But then afterwards, I'm like so glad that I did it because in essence, everyone in that room is feeling the same emotions, and you need to put yourself amongst those. And I came out of an experience that I hated, saying to myself, "You need to do this again too." And any and anyone, oh yeah, cool. But anyone could start training jiu jitsu today, and in six months, three months, enter a competition, and lose all their matches, and it might be the most alive they've ever felt. And yeah, that's the that's the uncomfortable thing. That I've done recently, and now the only uncomfortable thing.
0: Do you, Do you agree with Joe Rogan's description that jujitsu is high level problem solving with dire physical consequences?
1: I think that's a perfect way to summarize it. Uh, and I think uh, I can't remember who said it, but someone said it's like drowning, and sometimes it definitely does feel like that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> He is James Smith. The new book is How to Be Confident. You can get it now wherever books are sold. And also, check him out if you're listening here in Austin right now. He'll be in Austin at the end of the year, December 13th at 310 at ACL Live. Tickets for that event and every other event in the North American tour that month can be purchased at jamessmith.live. Also, make sure to give him a follow if you are not already on Instagram at jamessmithpt. James, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. For more of his work, go to GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for checking us out. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. talk to you next time on Books on Pod.